Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. Hey friends, it's Natalie here. So when you listen to this episode, you're going to hear a good few minutes of my four-year-old beloved son, Alexander, uh, chiming in and making his presence known. So feel free to chuckle along with that and uh, pick up on some of my annoyance that uh, what it is to be a working mother who is parenting at the same time. But also think about the presence of his voice in a conversation about the ministry and how we can better incorporate children into what we do. I am inviting you to think about that while you hear my son interrupt this interview. So anyway, peace and love. And we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And joining me and Jess this morning is the beloved Michelle Bogue Trost, who we were very, very lucky to be able to ask and who said yes to being on this, uh, this podcast that has been a blessing in all of our lives. So welcome, welcome, Michelle. Oh, I am so delighted you asked me. I'm very glad to be here. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. So, Michelle, the way we always start these uh, these interviews is to ask you to say whatever you would like to about your spiritual journey. Um, okay, so I never, um, I was not particularly churched in my family of origin, except with my grandmother. So I would stay with my grandmother for the summers and go to church then. So I had, I had a Christian life one third of the, one quarter of the year and then went back home to my, my parents who, you know, it was not a church thing. Um, so I came up in that church, Capitol Heights United Methodist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, which is now closed. Um, and I learned for me, that's where I learned that Christianity is about community and that Jesus is about, um, uh, seeing the worth in people who think they're even not worth, not worth it. Um, and, and junkie childhood, junkie family. So um, I learned those two key things there and um, actually continuing, we moved to Montgomery and continuing um, through high school and into college. Um, my, my teenage rebellion was going to church because it's my mother my mother had to drive me so <laughs> um and and uh so I I learned to relate with people who were wearing the same Jesus lenses um as I was and learning to talk about faith and learning to explore faith um but doing it in a in a Southern context is very different than doing it up here in, in a Northeastern context. So um, Methodist churches down there are really 
Baptist with different polity. Um, and I didn't get that at the time. I didn't know. So I, I learned things like you had to have, you had to be able to say what date you were saved. Um, you had to carry your Bible around at church. Um, to be seen as a, a Christian, right? So you had to be seen, you had to prove you were a Christian and you had to be seen doing it. And you had to be ready to tell somebody when you were saved so that you could lead them to salvation, right? Um, not, not my jam. And I never could, I never could say what day I was saved. I finally started saying, the, every time somebody asked me that, I'd say about 2000 years ago on a Friday. And <laughs> they never asked me again. It was great. Um, so learning, learning that there are responsibilities to being Christian, learning that there are responsibilities in a life of faith. Um, I learned that stuff, but I also learned, you know, from my, all my adopted grandparents at this church that, um, church is about living out faith in love and family and community and just embracing embracing anyone who walks through the doors they didn't necessarily but they embraced me every time I walked through those doors nine months apart you know so that was that that was my formative stuff um I moved three days after I graduated college I moved to Troy New York which was a culture shock in so many ways because I had just gotten married so graduate college 20 days later got married three days later, moved to New York. And, um, you know, that was as much disruption as you can imagine it could be. Um, but I yes. found my, again, yeah. Found, yeah, found my way into a church. <clears throat> That's uh, a lot. It, it is a lot. It <laughs> I admire lot. you. Um, Going straight from Alabama to, uh, Troy, New York yeah, is a lot. I so. Zero people besides yeah. my, z zero people. Um, but I found a church finally and um, started exploring what that means in a different context. It's a whole different language, um, but grew in my faith and then had my daughter and started discerning a call to ministry. So when she was three, I had a wonderful pastor who sort of confronted me with that call because I'm from Alabama. Women aren't preachers women don't pastor churches. So he encouraged me and said, you know, confronted me with the call that he saw. And I'll be grateful to him for a very long time for that. That was David Lockwood. Um, so it's just kind of from there, I went to seminary at Drew, grew and grew and grew more and more and more. And I, I wouldn't say my faith grew taller, but deeper and wider. And, um, you know, so said yes, seminary, appointments, et cetera. 27 years later, I'm here. Can I point something out real fast? Sure. Yeah. Um, you say that in the South, you know, women aren't preachers, but in the South, women are preachers. They just don't preach in the pulpit. Yeah. Also, well, maybe well, they that do is now. True, but I was but. not savvy enough. <laughs> there, was, there was nothing savvy about me at all, right? I just knew that. I knew one woman pastor mm -hmm. who was a local pastor who was um, a boyfriend's mother. 
mm-hmm. and she she was just awful and um I'm like <laughs> okay so but I wasn't even thinking in terms of call then at all sure. so um, yeah. yes you are correct it's just in different circles mm-hmm. yeah and I mean there's lots of people in the north that don't think women are clergy either so it's, it's definitely not just our friends in Alabama that think oh that. sure no, no, no. It's just the, it's just the oh, shifting yeah. from that mm-hmm. faith culture to this oh, yeah. faith culture and being incredibly naive about everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, it. totally. Yeah. I lived briefly in North Carolina as a child and yes, coming from New York state to North Carolina and then going to Colorado, very, very different culture everywhere you go in mainline churches so yes understood yeah but what i what i think that's given me though Mm -hmm. is an ability and sometimes when i'm lucky a facility with with being able to speak those two languages and build bridges Mm -hmm. i i know i know what's behind this language and i know what's behind this language and it's not always that different um sometimes it is profoundly different but it's not always that different so you know i can speak i can speak that language i can speak this language and i've been able not just to grow in my own faith because of it because it's so much easier to articulate what you believe when you are confronted with what you know you don't um but to bring people together into conversations who might never have had those conversations before Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And when you move to Troy, so that's not that far from where I live now. I live in Schenectady and I yep. serve at East Parkway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I moved to this part of the state from Rochester. Oh my, that's a whole ago. cultural shift too. That Here. was an enormous cultural shift. So I can't imagine going from Alabama to Troy. Now, granted, well, I, I did a yeah. layover in the Adirondacks for a year. So that was another little ministry messes with your head just the geography alone right it messes with your head and and you kind of have to develop like it's I want to say something about how you kind of develop multiple personalities to cope with it but I want you to take that the way that I intend it which is in a which is a giftedness kind of way I like to think of that as being able to speak multiple languages that's probably a better way to put it yeah code switching Mm-hmm. Yeah. that's the term yeah, for it exactly. is code and that happened again when i i was in the capital region adirondack and albany districts for almost 20 years and and down to the southern tier here in the binghamton district is that was that was a whole shift too nobody got my jokes because mm-hmm. i had you know adirondack and capital region jokes and you know that kind yeah. of thing so yeah you do shift that but i think if if you approach that openly mm-hmm. um um and be and and be willing to sit in the awkwardness of it um it's a rich and fruitful experience if we can if we get there yeah it is i just i um and and thank you just for naming it as code switching because that's very important but yeah. sorry that's just my kid but anyway thank you for Sorry about that. Thank you for naming that as code switching. Some of the things I, yeah. 
one of the things that I lament about the code switching is the things from my code as a young millennial woman that I have to leave out when I'm speaking churchies. And it comes from a it comes from a lot of directions, including him, the four-year-old screaming on the floor. But there is language from this part of my life, this part of my life right here, that I don't use around church people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And why is that? Oh, I Well, I end up using, I like to use memes and other stuff like internet culture stuff in my Bible studies and stuff. I can't do it as much in my sermons as I would like to, um, though I have used Simpsons clips, which are very effective and Saturday Night Live clips sometimes. Um, <laughs> but um, then I have to explain the memes. Like if I'm on my Zoom Bible study with like my my friends, then I don't have to explain the meme. But if I'm in like Sunday morning, Sunday school, I have to explain the memes, which is hard, but I feel like it's still like, it still can be really effective way of communicating. Well, it can, and it's, it's endemic to you as a person and as a pastor. Um, so you, and it shows, it shows your folks that things do not stay the same and they want a young and vibrant pastor. Well, this is what comes with a young and vibrant pastor. You shouldn't have to leave that at the door and you shouldn't leave that at the door. And if they need it explained, tell them you'll explain it after the service. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just thank you for immediately saying exactly what was on my mind. You're good like that. Um, yeah. So, so it's something that a lot of older people in our churches really, they, they don't understand because it's not part of their culture and they didn't grow up with it. But us millennials and then our Gen Z friends, we love memes. We communicate, we communicate huge segments of our thought through memes. Yeah, those and, images, yeah. Yeah. And not only do we do we share our thoughts that way, but we share like broad scale reactions to like major world events. We share political imagery. We share all kinds of stuff by way of meme. The problem is that um, when you hit that culture shift at uh, in a church group, um, all of that can come off as disrespectful or something. And it's really, it, when you break it down, it's really just because it's from youth culture that older people find it disrespectful. So it-, it, it, it some, it's, some are intrigued and some are enchanted and some are excited. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, yeah. You know, we, we preach to that. And and that's that's been the same for however many years this has been. You know, some people get it and they love it. And the ones who don't, don't. And I just pay attention to the ones who love it. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. It's but it, you find a big yeah. part of surviving as a dangerous liberal lady preacher is finding how sharp your claws have to be sometimes in order to go against the grain of the naysayers. Yep. Um, and, and you have to be willing to expend that energy. You do. And frequently we're coming into situations where we're coming into situations where we simply don't, where we simply don't have the power, you know, somebody else is holding the, the keys for, you know, who, who makes the decisions around here. Um, and so we're fighting really hard against that, even to be recognized as authoritative. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. Of the, so this is a little, sorry, 
in my oh, context, it's kind of weird because I'm like the deacon and I, I, for the last like three elders we've had, I've had female elders. So there's like a sense of authoritativeness that goes along with being, you know, Deacon Jessica, Pastor Jessica, which is kind of cool. They also kind of give me the space, like they do a lot, all the administrative stuff that gives me the space to kind of come and be creative in different areas. Um, but also like when you pray over people, when you pray for people, then that kind of bestows a certain level of authority on you. And that like finding that for the first time that my, my church was giving that to me was extremely powerful and humbling, very humbling. So Michelle, I'm sure that you have had similar experiences. Yes. With discovering that. I have, I've been, um, several times I've been the first woman assigned to a, appointed to a church. Um, I'm the first woman senior pastor here. Um, and that's, that's a whole new world. And that goes a different way with every church. But I, I think, I think for women, um, there's so much inner scripting that we have to just ignore, mm. um, to some extent, ignore for ourselves, but realize it's, it's the same inner scripting that our congregants have, you know, that, that those folks in the pews have. Um, and so that's been part of my job for all these years is, is to teach, to show that we can rewrite scripts. Um, and it does take, it does take that moment where you are ascribed at least some authority. It takes relationship to win that authority and, and, and to move to a place where people can start saying, okay, it's safe to start rewriting the scripts because I know her and I trust her. Um, yeah, so I've I've had tricky times. I've had trustees yell at me because they think I didn't know anything about building stuff. And um, I've had, oh, more than my share of um, head pats, literal. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, I've had more than my share <clears throat> of, oh, I can't say it any other way, but dirty old men. Ugh. You know, I, I've just, and, and as in any profession where women are not always the majority, though I think we are climbing fast because the men are ditching church because they can't handle, handle leading something that's shifting seismically. Um, there's, there's just some script rewriting that has to, has to happen on both sides of the equation to succeed at that. Michelle, so, this is so weird. So you mentioned the dirty old men thing. And like, sometimes it's like, you can kind of like, and this is, maybe it's because I grew up, like my family is um, working class Buffalo, right? So, you know, I've noticed this is one of the things that Buffalo people are very different than other people in New York state, especially like, you know, within the, the church system around here, we kind of come off as being very, I don't know, like crass and straightforward and, you know, rash, you know, and um, kind of like less, maybe less genteel than say Rochester or the capital region, you know, 
but it's like I kind of grew up dealing with dudes like that and so like I can kind of like figure out ways to dish it back or you know kind of deflect or whatever sometimes you can't do that though and not every person wants to and I want to like give I want to give everybody like space for that there are different ways that you handle it and I'm sorry that we still have to because we still have to there's like we're still dealing with that maybe to a lesser extent or maybe it's I think with like with dirty old men, it's almost sometimes it can be more harmless than it is with get yeah, the younger the well, guys get. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, it's not always harmless, and they're not always old. Yes, exactly. And it can be there can be a lot more kind of malevolence depending on what's coming at you or what the age of the guy is and stuff like that. And it's like sometimes it's easier to deflect that stuff than others. So. And you, can, um, and you get a sense. I mean, we're smart women. We, you know, we get yes. a sense of that. I, you know, I've got some, some older men here who, who just, that's just the way they relate. And, you know, they're not, they're not nasty. They're not malevolent, but they call mm-hmm. me honey. And, you know, it's for, for you, mm-hmm. you, you, I know, I, I know you, your story, you know, mine, I know you mm-hmm. are not trying to hit on me. I know you are not trying to disparage me. Um, you know, it's our language mm-hmm. together, but that's a language we develop together. Um, yeah. Yeah. On me. Um, and, and there's been others I've, I've straight up, the best thing I ever learned about dealing with that is looking at someone and saying, can you explain that? Mm-hmm. Can you explain what you just said to me? Mm-hmm. Um, wish I'd learned that 27 years ago. There's, um, I don't know if we need to start like saying something like, mm, do you think Jesus would have said that in this conversation? <laughs> what did Jesus say right now? Would Jesus have said that in this conversation, do you think? Mm. Yeah. But yes, that's a really good way of, of saying it. Can you explain that to me? That's like, mm-hmm. yeah. It calls people on what they're saying too. When you, when you, yeah. at, when you, when you say, no, 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 I'm not just taking that as a given. Would you explain that to me? I didn't understand that. What did you? I didn't understand why you referred to me that way. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. And I mean, you got to. There's a subtleness, subtlety to it that that you don't trip over, um, becoming the dumb woman. But um, I'd like you to explain what you just said to me. It's just yeah. been very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When um when me and Emily were in seminary together, we uh. We had a discussion that will stay ingrained in my mind for quite some time about um, how we interned at the same church the same year. It was Fairport United Methodist. Mm -hmm. And so and we were both 24 at the time and they had never had young women interns in the church. And even in a progressive church in a relatively progressive area, they didn't know what to do with you. Yeah, the amount of we heard quite a bit of BS to just put that out there. And we we had a conversation specifically about food nicknames. Why does everybody <laughs> want to call food? Honey, muffin, cookie, cupcake. Like we like like it was because it's so objectifying. It's gross and. So that alone was enough to drive us nuts, let alone, you know, the rest of the misogyny that goes with it. 
I'm wondering, Michelle, because you've had so much to say about switch, about um, rewriting scripts, if you have any more like stories about like times that you've times that you've confronted a script and helped people change it. Yes. I feel like I'm I'm on boom now and I'm asking you an ordination question. Oh my gosh, don't bring back those memories. Um I, I think that um well I'll I'll just use here. No, I will use two churches ago. Um up in the capital region. Um which is a very transient area, right? People come and go for college, people come and go for state jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So there's people in and out all the time. And I was in a church, I was at Newtonville Church. So that's on Route 9 in Latham. Mm -hmm. um, but in one of the oldest parts of that area, like Newtonville was settled first. So um, they, they experienced people coming and going because we were on a very busy street. People knew where we were. Um, so people would drop into church. They'd stay for a week or a year or 10 or whatever. Um, and and there was sort of a demoralizing thing about that. It's like, why does nobody stay? Mm. Why did nobody stay? So this, by the way, has nothing to do with dirty, creepy men. So um, that was the script they were telling themselves. We're only temporary. We're only temporary in people's lives. Um, that was the story that they couldn't even articulate. It took some time to get that, get to there. Um, but then we started saying, but what that means, and we're an older church and the younger people never stay and blah, blah, blah. So, so I said to them and they said to me and we, together, we, we rewrote the script that we are, a, we are an instant family of aunts, uncles, grandparents, for folks who are coming into the area and have no family here. They've moved away from home and family. And so what if we looked at ourselves that way? Mm. And um, so we we did some real creative reflection around that. We did some work around that. Um, they started getting excited about that. Um, we started saying, you know, I, I told them, I said, look, your official, your, your unofficial welcome or your unofficial mission statement, um, it's not written anywhere, but this is who you are is welcome home. And because everybody was just like treated like they had just come home every time they came in the door. I said, so, so let's live into that. And, and we did um, to some extent because they started thinking about how do we reach out to these populations in a way that's not like you have to come to church to save your souls, but this is a place where you can find some home when you're away from home. And that really turned around sort of the attitude about that. And so when it's subtle and sometimes it takes a long time to get there, but when you rewrite the script together, um, good things can happen. They, they didn't, they grew, they grew, but they also grew emotionally and, grew in their level of confidence about being a church and about being the congregation they were. Yeah. 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 Actually, um, in the, the, the first, one of the first churches that I served, um, 
we uh, active active membership in this very small country congregation was down to around a dozen people, especially um, during the slow months. They were right off of Canandaigua Lake. So mm -hmm. in the summer, oh, right. this big boom of people that were there because they were staying in beach houses, but then they would go back to their other beach house, <laughs> which was somewhere in like either North Carolina or Florida or like somewhere a warmer. warmer. Yeah, and, and a retirement community in a warm state. Um, and then it, throughout the winter months, we would have this small quorum of people that happened to live there year round. And they were calling themselves the Dirty Dozen. So, um, it, but it was, it was, it, it, there was some charm to that, but there was also a lot of low self-esteem built into that. So I, I, we, we started brainstorming on how can we change our language? Because I think if you stopped calling yourselves the dirty dozen, you'd stop thinking of yourselves as the dirty dozen and you would stop thinking of this church that way. Right. So they calling themselves the 12 disciples instead. Right. So script, you know, script rewriting, but it, it, I think it made a big difference and, and, you know, and they grew from it. It does. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I've been able to help individuals to help write their own scripts. Some of them creepy guys, some of them folks who, because I think that's what Jesus did for me, right? Is rewrite my script, mm -hmm. my own self script. Um, and continues to do. <laughs> so I, th I think that's one of, one of our charges. That's, that's one of the pastoral charges we have is to help flip the script. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, Natalie, I wanted to point it out that um, there are churches in Florida who have the opposite problem. Well, they have the same problem. It's just the opposite time that's of the year. I went to yeah. Benita Springs United Methodist Church, who had a chatty young millennial pastor. And everybody in his church, except for me that Sunday, was like over the age of 55. He could tell that they were all snowbirds. And they, he actually said something like, please contribute to the summer, like, summer survival fund. Because yeah. in the summer, it was just like him and his family. <laughs> that was like it, you know? Yeah. So it's the same thing. But I actually like that you're talking about the script thing, Michelle, because the idea of rewriting, you know, older folks in churches seem to like want to say, well, we want young people, we want kids, blah, blah, blah. But then young people, people with kids come and then they're not always prepared for the realities of small children in worship the realities of like younger families and so it's kind of this weird thing where you'll encounter as a young person kind of weird hostility even mm -hmm. by people who state that they want you there but um then they're like oh well your kids are badly behaved or oh you know you're a young person blah 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 you know you don't you don't get it and it's like well maybe you don't get it and, and it's up to, us to translate that. Mm -hmm. It's up to yes. us to that with grace and kindness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've kind of lucked out because we've had um, a couple of visitors lately with young kids and their kids were kind of like acting out during service and a little obnoxious, but everybody was like, they're kids. They're two years old. This is what happens. And we're just like, we're happy you're here. And that, and the lady's like, I felt so welcomed here. Thank you. And we're like, yep, we got it. Got you love it when it goes right. Yep. Cause like, Lord knows I've had to carry my own kids out during service. Because 
because they were being too much. I had to ban my child from children's time at one point. Oh, I actually had I had an issue with my oldest um, at one church that I serve that during children's time every single week, uh, he would start talking about Star Wars, no matter what I was trying to talk to the other kids right. about, he would turn the conversation to Star Wars. <laughs> it, it was difficult, like the, the conversations you have to have with your kids about how, you know, just because you're the pastor's kid, it doesn't mean you you get to you, you get to just like own the show during children's time. Like you have to you have to sit here and share the stage with everybody. Um, yeah. One thing, though, I found it, it, there's a lot of reeducation that has to go into being um, th- that goes into being a young woman pastor with kids and, um, and the burden of that re-education ends up falling on our shoulders. It does. And that's the very difficult part of it because we're doing that while also raising this motley crew of small people. Um, but I, I found that it's, so a, a lot of our churches are, they're getting to, oh, well, I'm just so glad you're here and we're going to just, you know, embrace whatever happens, but then they kind of stall, they kind of plateau there. And that's only the beginning is that attitude shift. There is a whole piece about accessibility in the church that has to happen after you change the attitude, because um, we, we don't just need to uh, have a bunch of, uh, a bunch of children in the space and then just accept the fact that it's going to be incredibly noisy and that all the sharp things need to be put away and that someone needs to put the candles on a more secure base. Like you also need to make significant accommodations so that we don't feel like we're bringing bowls into a China shop. So, you know, like there's one script going back to the script thing where people will where especially I get this this one a lot from like older ladies they'll say oh but I just love babies we just we love babies everyone here loves them and everyone knows they cry so that's just fine and it's like well that's that's fan, that's a fantastic attitude to start with but place I don't need I don't need everyone to know that babies cry I need eight of you to get background checked and safe sanctuary trained and to start a nursery rotation. And since everyone loves babies, that shouldn't be a problem to find eight people that want to be nursery staff. Right. right? Um, but, but that's the next piece. And, and you have to push people to see that, that, that that's where this goes after that. And then you need to make, you know, you have to take one of these many abandoned Sunday school rooms in these, you know, mid-century churches that built entire Sunday school wings in the 50s and then and then filled them with tumbleweed in the decades after. Well, take one of those empty rooms, go through it, clean off those cobwebs and make sure that it's safe for contemporary children and turn it into a safe nursery. You know, yeah. but it, it it involves a lot of rethinking. It does, it does, and it does fall on the pastor the pastor's head to do that. Um, mm-hmm. The pastor is that parent. Um, sorry, that I wanted to adjust that and it went too far. Um, but but that's always been our role as pastor is to retrain congregations into being faithful, good community it feels like more pressure when we have children and we're trying to make those points that include ourselves. It's very easy to help people, not easy, but you know what I mean? It's um, simpler to help people flip scripts, if you like, um, 
about other things that aren't about us. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have that extra pressure. And yes, it would be great if our staff parish chair would stand up and do that work for us, or if our staff parish committee would stand up and do that work for us. Um, but if they don't, someone has to. And yeah, I there's no easy, it's hard. It's just hard. So, so since we're in this kind of season of reimagining what church could do, could be, do you think there might be an opportunity for the conference to learn how to do a better job of equipping churches to deal with young parents with young families again as pastors and as families, especially instead of young men with children, young women with children? Um, I do. I, I think okay. I think there's a there's necessary work to do and not just not just for areas like that right i think i think we're in uh, we're in a wibbly wobbly time right we are in this flux moment reformation moment um and i think that not just for issues like that but for issues like dealing with um, changing communities, dealing with issues of the ism issues, dealing with um, mission and ministry and work in the world. Um, we need to train and retrain pastors and retrain congregations about the fundamental nature of church. Um, mm -hmm. that, it, that it's not, this is not your faith um, cafeteria. Um, this is, this is all of us around a table together trying to be disciples of Jesus, um, which, which has to flatten in, in one sense has to flatten a structure, you know, the whole clergy institutional structure has to flatten at least somewhat for that. And probably a whole lot. And probably we need to really rethink how we do that. Um, but the congregations have to learn that it is their responsibility to be the people of faith, not just to act like the people of faith. So um, how the conference does that, I don't know. How our denominational structure does that, I don't know. Um, but I think those are the conversations we need to start having. We need to stop, oh, yeah, I hear the sacred cow moving. We need to stop, um, training staff parishes and training trustees and training we need to start training congregations um as a whole that that those yes there are certain people who who have to like put their names on the decisions right but that's not their work alone you know staff yes. parish is, a, is a ministry of supporting your pastor um the pastor's ministry is helping to support the congregation. So, you know, I've never really understood staff parish, the name of that, um, except for being the complaint box, you know. But, um, you know, the trustees work is a work of hospitality. The, you know, go on and on. You, you know what I'm saying, I think. But, um, and I could get really heated up on this and start preaching, but I, I'm not going to. Uh, I, I think there's a, and it's it, maybe it goes back to rewriting scripts. You know, my script as a parishioner isn't supposed to be, I just come to church, 
get fed or not on a Sunday, see my peeps, um, you know, have some nice snacks that I didn't have to make, uh, adore other people's children that I don't have to take care of and, um, know that someone's going to do my funeral. My work as a person of faith in a congregation is to come and be the body, make those decisions, do that creative work together. I think we've taken away the creativity out of congregational life and work by structuring it so granularly. You, you know, I don't, I don't want to say silos because, you know, in the churches I've worked in, those, those things have overlapped. In a, in a good church mm -hmm. that works together, those things overlap, but we spend a lot of time doing those things. Um, why are we not just sitting at the table, sharing the meal with each other and then the world? That's some serious script changing. I'm sorry about that. No, it's okay. I'm just- We don't have a secretary. We're getting a secretary. <laughs> I don't know where the associate went. He's out there somewhere. Well, so okay. often as, as the pastor, you end up wearing all of the hats for those kinds of things anyway. Yes. You know? Yes. And yes. And you have to do it carefully. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could inject, just because you have so much energy around this, I, I honestly, I want to hear more about it. Like if you, if you could like inject some of that creativity, like what would it look, what would it look like? Into a, into a local church or into structures? I mean, I guess into either structures. one. Yeah, but structures. Yeah. Okay, let's go structures. Structures. Um, okay. Um, general conference is general conference and going always going to be general conference. That's where the politicians go to live um, and where they die in their seats. Um, and I say that as someone who's, you know, general conference is my jam. I love it because the potential for the church as a body is so great. Um, and, and every time I go, that's what I'm working toward. But um, I think that the way we do legislation is abominable. I think there are other ways to do legislation and consensus rather than voting. Um, I think that... Um, on the jurisdictional national level, I think we need to be electing bishops who haven't come up a ladder of structural underpinning. Um, it, it is very rare for someone to be elected bishop who has not been a DS or a DCM or, or whatever. And there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there. I mean, jurisdictional conference, general conference, those are older folks too, um, who've always just that's what they know. And so we, we stick with what we know um, and they can't conceptualize it any other way. But I think that um, our Bishop, I was very pleased in his interviews. Yes, he was a DCM, he was a DS, um, but he sees some of that ne necessity for flattening structures. So I think there's hope. We are electing people who have potential for that kind of work. I think taking out the expectations of um, structural competence 
and electing folks. I mean, we want competent folks. That's not what I'm saying, but um, we want folks who can just put everything on the table and say, what is right for now for this context, for this conference, like we're supposed to do in churches. Um, I, I'm one of, I'm one of the weird ones that you will hear say, I don't think the ordination process is too strict or too cumbersome. I think we could manage it better and we could support yes. better in it far better than we do. Yes. Um, but I think I think we've got so many folks who are who are becoming disenchanted with their churches that they're starting their own churches, right? Um, which is fine. But do, do you really want helpless congregations, you know, unsuspecting congregations? Um, I don't want unsuspecting congregations to be loaded down with pastors who don't know anything about pastoral care, or who don't know anything about theology don't know anything mm -hmm. about scripture um, or or any of that. So for me, I still hang on to an educated clergy, um, mm -hmm. be it be it course of study, be it licensing school, be it whatever. I, I want somebody who's taking care of people's spirits and bodies and minds to have at least encountered some sort of education about that. Oh. 100%. I mean, there's just a lot of um, this this uh, podcast called Straight White American Jesus, where he talks about, they have this whole series called In the Code. And so one of the things that's so fascinating about It's in the Code is that it's a code that is emerged out of fundamentalism and out of the evangelical movements in the United States in the 20th century. I'm talking about late 20th century, yeah. not like what evangelical was in the 19th century, because that's different. Um, but it, it, how much that code has come and infected mainline churches. Yes. And I say infected very, like, very That's an intentional use. I heard for it. A good reason. Um, and how a lot of this kind of language has, has come into our churches and it has not always been a positive thing, but in yes. particular, he talked about non-denominational churches and how it's really about a lot of it comes down to like doctrinal purity and how, well, we're in a non-denominational church because we are, we're too pure for those like dirty Baptists or those dirty this or that. And just how egotistical that really is. Like we know best. So we can't be in a community of, or a denomination of other people that might give us oversight and might tell us that we need to change some things. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I that's one of my big problems with um, the whole non-denominational movement is that what you're saying to me is that you don't want somebody over you telling you that maybe there are certain things you shouldn't do. Or certain things, authority problem, things that, you know? you know, just because you believe it and you believe God has said this to you that um, there are ways to discern along those lines instead of starting your own church so you can say whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, the um, I, I think as far as, you know, ordination and all of that, it's there are so many things with that system that I don't 
like, I mean, and I say that having happily served on board of ordained ministry for most of my career, <clears throat> um, I, th I think our, our new clergy need support, more support than they get. Um, I think that there are more creative ways of structuring pastoral coverage at churches that could include um, mentoring for younger, newer, not younger, newer clergy um, that doesn't involve just sticking a younger clergy person out and saying, all right, have at it. And by the way, we're going to evaluate you in three years. I mean, yeah, it, one of the biggest challenges that I've seen with the mentorship program is that you're sticking them with an experienced clergy person, but who is also full-time. And you, as like a young person, are also working full-time and going to school and this and that. You don't really have time to meet with your mentor. Your mentor doesn't really have time to meet with you. Right. So you can't, there's no, there's no opportunity to really sit down and like talk the way you really need to to reflect on the process and get that support. There is that. There's also the the experience and having somebody as a safety net. I mean, we have people entering entering the pastorate. You know, I knew people at seminary, knew people coming through the ordination process who had never been to a funeral, much less done one, right? And mm. licensing mm. school gets you a this much. Yep. So, so how do we, how do we help people navigate through the experiential stuff, the experiential part of being a pastor, which includes things like life balance and um, helping congregations relate to younger people with kids, for example, right? Um, or a pastor with disabilities or a cross-cultural pastor or whatever, without somebody there, at least as a sounding board, but, but more practically as as help navigating that in a congregation. There's and this one, go ahead. There's this one tweet that I sent to Natalie and Emily, and I've been reflecting on it a lot lately, and not just in the context of kind of wider American society, but even in the context, especially in the context of the church. And um, let me just, this, it came off of a tweet and it said, Adolf Reed Jr. once remarked that liberals don't really believe in politics anymore, just in bearing witness to suffering. I think about that a lot. And I've been thinking about that a lot in the church is that this we've had we're in the system now where it seems like for clergy in particular and to a lesser extent with laity, we just kind of witness each other, bear, like bear witness to each other's suffering and we do absolutely nothing about it. A, because everybody's suffering and burned out and sad and everybody feels helpless and hopeless and B, because we just don't know what to do. And I'm like, we got to get past this. It's killing people. Well, we have chronic bystander syndrome. We we think somebody else. Yes. Is and I, for years now, I feel like I've been bringing stuff up to people and saying, we got to do something, we got to change something. And they're just like, oh, no, 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 don't take that to so-and-so. Oh, no, 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 we can't, we can't take that to so-and-so. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I, I want to caution you about like going to the bishop with that because it's just, you have to go through the hierarchy first. And it's like, 
But what if the hierarchy is part of the problem? <laughs> what if the hierarchy is causing the suffering? Natalie, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm trying not to violate anybody's privacy here, but. No, I mean, I think at a certain point, it, instead of, oh, don't take that to so-and-so, you kind of have to be so-and-so. We it, it, Like Becky Sweet said in her episode, we need to take that authority and just change stuff. And we're at the point that's that's what we need to just do. On that note, um, Michelle, the place where we always end these interviews is with one of our beloved questions. What If you could tell the world one thing about God, what would it be? You know, you sent that to me and I thought, one thing? Um, <clears throat> that God is more than we can imagine or conceptualize. That we are of more worth than we, in God's eyes, than we can imagine or conceptualize. And that half of what we, more than half of what we put on God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the church, is our own stuff and not God's. And if God is your co-pilot, switch seats. <laughs> I really love that, Michelle. So if you switch seats, aren't you still co-pilots? Yes. <laughs> But God is no, no. There's a senior pilot and co-pilot. Oh, okay. Sorry, my dad was a pilot. My, my dad was a pilot. Uh, okay. Co-pilot is is slightly less slightly less than angels. So so we say. I love it, Michelle. Thank you so 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 much for joining us for this. This will be an abundant blessing. It has been to us, and it will be for everybody who listens to this. Oh, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the time with you all. It was lovely to chat with you. Yeah, totally. Michelle, before we go, you have a a fallout shelter sign behind you in your office, and I want to know about that. <laughs> it um. You can't see because the, the sun is coming in the window, but you are correct. You have picked out the fallout shelter sign. And um, that was in the building. I think they, they constructed part of the basement of this building as a fallout shelter because in the 60s when they were building stuff. And mm -hmm. um, it just, it actually seems an appropriate, appropriate thing for a church that this is a shelter from the fallout of your life and your choices and your mistakes and your... The... the suffering and evils of humanity yeah it's a shelter with which i mean shelters weren't meant to be they're not meant to be permanent they're a place yep. to to regroup thank you for being willing okay. to 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 talk to us today and to hear all of our gripes and all of our reflections <laughs> this is a painful time in the church it is a painful time for clergy um, sometimes I feel like the last one standing. Uh, I, I know I'm not, but um, my colleagues who came came up at the same time as I did are most of them are leaving church, and it's it breaks my heart. And I see younger clergy, and I mean younger clergy and newer clergy, um, making those same decisions, and it breaks my heart because it's not all just. You know, I got my call wrong. I got to do something else. It's it's about the whole the whole picture. Well, first we'll be the dirty dozen, and then we'll flip the script. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. And amen to that.
All right. Thank you both so much. Yes. Peace be with you, Michelle. And with you. Amen. Amen. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.